You know, whatever it all attention beings may attend, beloved, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain brotherhood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain brotherhood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all except from the path of all missions, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. course class, course called Pure Perception, referring to the perception of John, of uh, Rangjung Dorje, sees it the way, way it is, tells it the way it is, and uh, tonight's class we're going through the uh, text called Pointing Out the Tathagata Garba, the Buddha nature, the Tagata heart. And um, this is our last class of this year. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and uh, so we'll, we'll start up again next year, make it through this book. After this text, we have three other things to go through. We have a commentary on this text by uh, Power Rimshe, Power Tsuklok Tringwa. Uh, sorry, no, Karma Trinlepa's explanation of the Sugata Heart. It's about 10 pages. And then Power Tsukla Trengwa's presentation of Kaya's Wisdoms and Enlightened Activity. I, I think it makes sense to go through those. Next, and then we'll go through the final text, which is John Wickham's commentary on the treatise, treatise on distinction between consciousness and wisdom, which was actually the main text that I wanted to go through. You have to go through hundreds of pages of other stuff to get to it. Sort of an analogy for... the effort required to obtain the holy dharma, the true dharma, sat dharma. So, on the Tathagata heart, if you recall, the main issue, 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 issue. If we think this is difficult, remember they used to have to traipse across the Himalayas to get teachings and uh, deal with robbers and bandits and all those things, right? And all we have to do is read a difficult book, right? That's what they say, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that cool? We are so fortunate. 
So no complaining. In other words, they didn't have emails they had to deal with and things like that. <laughs> Can you imagine if Marpa could have used Zoom instead of, you know, making these three trips or whatever? <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going to pick the the mandala on the Zoom screen or the teacher in person? What's your choice? Teacher in person. Right. Okay, so here's the outline of the text. And uh, we are in the so-called detailed explanation of the Tathagata Garbha. And uh, we did the explanation of the quote from the Abhidharma Sutra. And um, we went through the explanation of... No, 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 tonight we have the explanation of false and correct imagination, right? We're on page 228, the meaning of purity and impurity. Where is that here? No, yeah, we did all this stuff. False and correct imagination, then we got the qualities of Buddha, of the We went, of we the went through all those numbers. Yeah, yeah, we went through the numbers of the Dharmakaya and the Rupakaya. And we are in the purity and impurity of the Rupakayas, right? The essence of the qualities, the justification that they dwell. Excuse me. In this very body. <laughs> and that they dwell in this very body. And then the manner of their purity and impurity. And then some examples. which has this interesting part on the two imaginations, the pure and impure. And then we have some uh, response to objections, causelessness, and then impure and pure mentation, the function of those on the path. This is basically like the path. And then the fruit, the fruition is the wisdoms, the all-accomplishing uh, wisdom, wisdom of equality, in particular, those two of the five or four wisdoms. Uh, further explanation on the nature of the kayas as being permanent and then dispelling uncertainty that might arise, where which is sort of the most interesting part down here. And then uh, just some final little summaries at the end, which were very helpful, but I thought we would just skip to these summaries at the end, just kidding. Okay. So back to page uh, 228. And I'm not going to read that many quotes, if that's okay with you guys. If there's a quote that you like that I don't read, please let me know. We'll go through it. The manner of the purity and the impurity. Oh, I forgot to ask one main thing. What is the main point that this text and Mipalm's text on Tathagatagarbha all are talking about? Like these endless presentations in this text. What is the main issue about Buddha nature? Explaining why is Buddha nature need to be explained? What's so complicated about it? Is it because it exists? Like we have it? 
Is there. that just that? Just that? And it's just covered up? Well, I wouldn't say just covered up. <laughs> but yeah. I'm they... getting the sense that you have to get, not only go through all the boomies, but you got to get over them, like get past them to, okay. you know, it just kept saying, yeah. And then once you get past that one, you get rid of it because it really wasn't real. <laughs> you know, I just keep saying that. Like, okay, you know. but. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Mary Beth <clears throat> in terms of the responding to my question. Is the big issue is how to understand the seemingly contradictory nature of Buddha Buddha nature being spontaneously fully present in all beings, and yet at the same time not revealed or unfolded or actualized or some such terms in the state of sentient beings and the state of sentient beings themselves being a sort of illusory experience because the state of being a sentient being is, is purely the result of not recognizing the Buddha nature. And that when it's recognized and cultivated, and when we cultivate that recognition, then the Buddha nature's uh, the qualities of Buddhahood uh, spontaneously emerge, but they don't increase, they don't develop, they don't change. The only thing that changes is the illusion of being a sentient being dissolves. And so there's this fine line that's being drawn between um, this, between, well, Buddha nature is a a relative convention and it's not really the ultimate truth on the one hand some people say that um, and on the other hand some people say <clears throat> well Buddhahood is fully developed all the time in all sentient beings and so Mipam, Rongjung Dorje, Wang Chenpa and many others uh, weave this middle path between those two views, saying that Buddha nature is there, but in some ways it's not fully um, evident because the coverings have not been uh, worn away. So that that is the main point and the main reason, uh, their main point that this text and others like it go on at great length trying to explain. And it is a, 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 an important point and a fine point and a sort of hard to, to understand point because it's sort of holding two contradictory, logically contradictory ideas in mind at the same time. Henrietta. Is it also addressing emptiness? Then dealing with yeah. When you say is it dealing <laughs> well, with emptiness, the, what is the it? Well, the the yeah the the idea that um, Buddha nature exists um, is also saying something about emptiness, the quality of emptiness. No. Well, that's a, that's one of the fine points. It it, it seems that uh, the Buddha nature is not empty, 
mm-hmm. of, of qualities, but the conventional is empty. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, the extreme, erroneous extreme views about Buddha nature is that it also is empty. And that's the Galukpa, common to the Galukpa school. And some Sakya teachers are, well, emptiness is like all other phenomena, and it's empty, and it's mm-hmm. not ultimately real. And then we have the, the Zhentongpas, Dolpopa, and so forth, who are like Buddha nature, uh, Buddhahood, the qualities of Buddhahood are ultimately true and conventionally true, and are always present, fully developed. And so, Rongjung uh, Dorje and so forth are uh, treading the middle path between those that uh, Buddha nature is not empty. It's uh, full of the supreme qualities of Buddha nature, of Buddhahood, sorry. And at the same time, it's not fully actualized or revealed at the time of ascension being. But it doesn't change or develop. The sentient being diminishes till it disappears, leaving leaving the Buddha nature, which is the image of uh, that's used at the end of like um, when heat dissipates from an iron, um, <clears throat> or when the the blurriness and blurred vision dissipates. Are the images? Okay, so can can I just ask a follow up to that possibly, in terms of maybe. the um, <clears throat> like you know in terms of the, the Buddha nature being empty not being empty because it has qualities are those considered mutually exclusive in all cases because like for example we as beings are empty but have but appear to have characteristics, yet we would be viewed as empty, right? Beings, phenomena, etc. Because we're empty of characteristics. So we are empty of characteristics. So it's, it's not just empty of being considered truly existent, but it's empty of any kind of, I guess that's one of those, the, the signlessnesses or whatever. The sign, um, okay. Yeah, so so all all conventional phenomenal appearances are empty of any true existence, of any essence, of any characteristics that makes them what they are, or what we think they are. Whereas all the Buddha qualities are truly existent and have the characteristic of being what they are. And so the adventitious, uh, the Buddha nature is empty of the adventitious stains, but it's not empty of the Buddha qualities. The famous quote from the Uttara Tantra. So trying to weave this path between, this middle way between uh, nihilism and eternalism and uh, existence and non-existence. So our, our middle path people here then are saying that it is truly existent. They would yes. use that term truly existent for it? Yes. Yeah, I think we encounter it tonight. Let's see what he says. Yeah. So, uh, therefore, the nadis, vayas, and tilakas, when pure, are the pure rubikayas. Unpurified, they're the impure 
rupakayas. Therefore, according to the just explained manner in which the two kinds of rupakaya abide in the body, through nadis, vayus, and tilakas, more commonly known as prana, nadi, nadi, prana, and bindus, which collectively are known as the basis of purification, <clears throat> becoming completely pure of adventitious stains, what is to be purified, they undergo a change of state as the pure rupakaya. So this in, inconceivable uh, secret of reality is that <clears throat> they're, they're there and they're unchanging, but they change in state. This means that Nadi's values and Dilikas are purified as the mandala of enlightened body, speech, and mind, respectively, <clears throat> during the phase of sentient beings with unpurified stains. Um, those three abide as the impure or stained rupakayas. These points are clearly discussed in the omniscient venerable Rangjun Dorji's profound inner reality in a section which we did not read a commentary on. Uh, with the phase of purity in mind, it says the three kayas are nadis, vayos, and tilakas. And then with the impure phase in mind, it states, thus the skandhas, datus, ayatanas, and what consists of nadis, vayas, and tilakas originate from the stained mind as such. This is said to be the stained nirmanakaya. So various ways of talking about the Buddha qualities of Buddhahood in the phase of ascension being as not being the same as the Buddha qualities in the phase of a Buddha. Somehow distinguishing that without diminishing their entity their existence. And the auto-commentary is neat, so I'll read these quotes. Here the meaning of the statement in the Mantrana that birth is the Nirmanakaya of a Buddha is as follows. During the time when the skandhas, datus, and ayatanas are gradually completed, <clears throat> this is the supreme emanation, the stained rupakaya of a Buddha. Once purified, being without stains, the bhaga, <clears throat> which is the womb, sorry, hold on a second. Uh, the Bhaga is the Dharmadhatu, the ten months in the womb, and in the Tibetan and Indian tradition, they they believe that uh, pregnancy lasted ten months. But you'll remember their months are twenty-eight days, not thirty-one. So that gives you about eighteen, nine times two or so days, maybe three, two and a half, so twenty. That gives you about another month, maybe. So that makes 10 months. The 10 months in the womb are the, conveniently the 10 boomies. Natural full ordination is wisdom. <laughs> the mother is the preceptor. The placenta is the dharma robes. That's a cool one. <laughs> the mantra of speech is aham. Aham. <laughs> to cleanse. Hey, Iswar, welcome. To cleanse this body and so on is the manner of bestowing it. Empowerment, talking about birth, great light rays and the completion of the four states abides as the Buddha endowed with the four kayas. Completion of the four states is, uh, he doesn't give a footnotes, the four states. 
might be like uh, life, um, the uh, clear light of death, and the bardo of becoming, and the bardo of dharmata. However, um, through not realizing this, it shows as an ordinary samsaric being. So in the Vajrayana, there's this endless, somewhat endless and uh, complex way of correlating basically everything in the, in the entire universe with the enlightened manifestation of the Buddhas. Thus, this is as Rangjong Dorje explains it here in detail. Okay, so explaining this by matching an example and its meaning. So it gives goes through these examples of the barrel. For example, in an encrusted blue barrel, its qualities do not shine forth through cleansing it with a woven cloth and an alkaline solution, cleansing it with acid and a towel, and cleansing it with pure water and cotton from kashi, the most pure of all cotton. It becomes pure, the gem that is the source fulfilling all needs and desires. To illustrate this mind as such, the heart of the victor is through an example in an encrusted gem of blue barrel, its qualities that are the source which fulfills all needs and desires do not shine forth. Since they are obscured by its incrustations, in order to make these qualities shine forth first, it is cleansed through alternately scrubbing it with a woven cloth and soaking it in an alkaline solution. This being freed of course thus being freed of coarse stains. Next, its more subtle stains are cleansed through soaking it in an acid solution and wiping it with a woolen cloth towel. Sorry, finally, its most subtle stains are cleansed through soaking it in pure water and polishing it with fine cotton from Kashi. Through that, all stains of the incrustations that obscure this gem become pure. It thus, it thus, uh, it thus being the supreme of all jewels, the gem that is the source fulfilling all needs and desires. And so that's the uh, giving the example proper, and then he combines it with its meaning. Likewise, in order to cleanse the blue barrel of the mind from the three incrustations, which are afflictive and cognitive obscurations, afflictive being the kleshas, cognitive being uh, the belief in the two types of personal self, uh, two types of selves, a person and phenomena, and those of meditative absorption, primarily agitation and dullness, and the five... Uh, Hindrances is pure. Explain meditative absorption, how that's in there. It throws me off for some reason. Well, there's a tradition of there being three types of uh, obscurations. In some, in generally, in the second turning of the wheel of the Dharma, they focus on there being two types of obscurations: uh, kleshas and ignorance. Klesha varana, varana's veil or obscuration. Kleshas. Uh, neurosis, and then jnaya-varana, knowledge obscurations. And then in the third turning, they tend to add uh, obstructions to meditation, since meditation is essential in order to um, uproot the other two obscurations. And the obscurations to meditation are the five hindrances, attachment to sense, desire, and so So, forth. So when they say meditative absorption, they mean... They're saying that get in the, the way of meditation. <laughs> it, it, it follows from the dash, the M dash, I think it's called. 
I remember correctly, from the three encrustations, which are one, afflictive obscurations, and two, cognitive obscurations, and those obscurations of meditative absorption, the three types. It is purified in the paths of accumulation and preparation, the seven impure boomies and the three pure boomies. So this th these three levels of uh, stages of uh, purification. So he explains the example in the barrel-like nature of mind, luminosity, the Buddha nature, all Buddha qualities exist in a complete way. However, they are not clearly manifest, being obscured by the three obscuring incrustations, afflictive obscurations, such as avarice are the antagonistic factors of the six paramitas. See, the paramitas are lined up with the uh, kleshas, interestingly. So what is the paramita that overcomes avarice? What is avarice? Generosity. Generosity, love, right? Yeah, avarice is like hatred, right? Sort of like hatred. What I is think avarice? It's, no, it's stinginess, right? It's right. A, stinginess. stinginess. Yeah, wanting, uh, wanting to hold. Wantiness. Okay, like the Grinch who stole Christmas. Yes. <laughs> His heart was two sizes too small. Uh, I can't wait to see that again. I hope they show us. Okay. Um, uh, let's see. Cognitive obscurations are the clinging to the three spheres as being real. What would those three spheres be? That you're juggling the three spheres. Juggling apparently is very good to keep your, your mind healthy as you age, in case you're wondering for how to do that. Uh, the three spheres, I believe, would be a reference to... Let's see, who read the footnote? Anyone? 582. Mary Beth, the three spheres. I mean, I'm, para I'm, I'm paraphrasing the footnote, but Thank it's God. giver, the receiver, <laughs> and the given. Thank you very much. The object, the subject, and the activity. And the obscurations of meditative absorption are agitation and dullness. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Um, and in order to cleanse that luminous Buddha heart in the beginning, the coarse stains, afflictive obscurations are what is to be purified in the 12 stages of the path of accumulation, three times four. There's, um, this is a reference to the 37 bodhipakshas or wings of enlightenment that are aligned along the scheme of the five paths in eight sets. So you have first in the path of accumulation, you have the four... Any guesses? You're muted. Foundations of mindfulness. Yes, the four foundations of mindfulness comes first, and then the four right endeavors, endeavoring to lessen wrong, uh, endeavor, uh, endeavoring to lessen uh, negative qualities, not letting new one, new negative qualities develop, um, increasing existing positive qualities, and developing positive qualities not yet present and then the four miraculous feet of the of the flying horse which are uh, aspiration um, exertion or energy and uh, uh, what is it uh, mind uh, samadhi and prajna 
Did, um, did we ever do a handout on these? Those we did, we did. You can find that in many courses okay. in Abhidharma, and when we did the Abhi Smile Longer course, many course. We should have like a section on the website, Morgan. We got it where we post the, all these handouts. Yeah, that would be great to We've have. We talked them. about this endlessly, but I need somebody's help who's into it to like create like definitive versions. If there's anybody interested in doing that I might be willing to help <laughs> definitive versions of these key handouts and you go oh what are the 37 boom they would make that noise when you load them they would go boom or bam probably that would be better like the, the cook whatever his name was um And through the four factors conducive to penetration on the path of preparation, heat, um, what was it, heat, increase, highest uh, peak of existence and highest worldly dharma, the four stages in the path of preparation. And on the seven impure bhumis, the more subtle stains, the cognitive obscurations are to be purified. And on the three pure bhumis, the most subtle stains, the obscurations of meditative absorption or the fourfold clinging to characteristics are to be purified. And the fourfold clinging to characteristics are those famous four that uh, Eric tracked down for us from the Something Sutra, which are uh, um, things to be given up, relinquished, and the remedies, and suchness, and something or other. We'll come to them at least once Fruition. Fruition. Thank you very That's much. That's because I have the footnote up here. <laughs> right. Oh, let's see. Are to be purified. And he quotes Nagarjuna. I'll skip that. The detailed meaning of these points is found in the auto commentary, which I'll. Let's see, he quotes the Uttaratasha, since it's pure and yet endowed with inflictions, since it's not afflicted and yet purified, since its qualities are inseparable, since its activity is spontaneous and non-conceptual. The four inconceivables. It's pure, and yet it is endowed with afflictions. It needs to be purified. It's not afflicted, and yet it becomes purified. And it's, it has qualities, and they're inseparable, and it's acti it has activity, but that activity is spontaneous and non-conceptual. Thus it is said that this mode of being is difficult to realize by the other guys um, who have newly entered. Uh, let's see, for the time being it shall be taught by way of an example because it's difficult to realize when a big precious gem of blue barrel is encrusted. Okay, so this just repeats the whole same thing, so I'll skip that. So on page 232, uh, 0.4.3.3.3, the manner of overcoming the obscurations. Through the two imaginations. Yes, sir. I like starting at the top of 232. Like when you get towards the end, I, I really like what he said there. He said, Jem does not think I am encrusted. I am without <laughs> a safety. And then, he, you know, it really, he hammers it at, the, at that last point that basically it's spontaneous. Boom, happens. Yeah, and, and you don't control that. It just yeah, happens. yeah. There's no picking and choosing. It's yeah. it's automatic, automatic pilot. 
Let's see through false imagination, meeting pure imagination. Uh, false imagination, meet pure imagination. This is freedom from imagine. There is freedom from imagination, just like two wooden sticks being burned. This is the freedom from the fourfold clinging to characteristics, which we just heard about. The conceptions about what is to be relinquished, the remedies, suchness, and fruition. The four. And the, to be relinquished is focused on our favorite characters, A and A, apprehender and apprehended. The conception about what is to be relinquished and the remedies exist on the path of accumulation preparation as for the nature of these two. False imagination has the characteristic of being what is to be relinquished, clinging to what is impermanent as being permanent, clinging to what is conditioned as being real entities, clinging to samsaric existence, which has the nature of the three sufferings as being empty happiness and clinging to entities that have no identity as having or being an identity. The four impure, incorrect views, which is which are similar to the three um, marks with the addition of the impurity at the beginning. A pure imagination, which has the characteristic of being the remedy for false imagination, is to understand that what is conditioned is impermanent, that what is contaminated is suffering, that all phenomena are empty and identityless, and that nirvana is peace, the four marks of the Mahayana. Uh, through the factors to be relinquished in the remedies, meeting each other as in battle. <laughs> what happens is illustrated by the following example. Through rubbing a wooden stick on a piece of wood, neither of which have the characteristics of fire, a fire comes forth magically from them and burns both of them, upon which also the fire disappears on its own. Fire burns out. Just like that, since the remedies depend on the factors to be relinquished, Without the factors to be relinquished, there would be the, the, the remedies would be useless. Simultaneously, with the extinction of what is to be relinquished, the conceptions that are its remedies become extinguished too. At that point, through the power of the non-conceptual prajna of the noble ones arising, there is freedom from the imaginations of what is to be relinquished and their remedies. And he quotes the famous questions of Kashyapa Sutra. From rubbing two sticks, fire comes forth. Once arisen, this fire burns the very sticks. Likewise, once the power of prajna is arisen, these, this arisen prajna burns those very conceptions. And this is this whole, like, really hugely important idea that we use mind to go beyond mind. We use thought, con concept, to go beyond concept, to wear itself out, exhaust itself burn itself up. The fourfold clinging into characteristic consists of one to two that just mentioned two kinds of conceptions about what is to be relinquished and written. And its remedy is the conception about suchness, which are like knowing that the water in a dream is a dream, yet still making efforts to cross it. That's the great description of suchness, right? And for the clinging to the characteristics of the fruition, the conceptions of clinging to both what is to be relinquished and its remedies which exist on the path of accumulation preparation are eliminated through focusing on suchness, through being free from the conceptions of clinging to these two, the nature of phenomena seen directly, thereby experiencing the path of seeing. 
<clears throat> the conceptions of taking suchness as a reference point refer to the non-conceptual wisdom of bodhisattvas during the meditative equipoise on the first seven bhumis, <clears throat> and they're merely taking samsaric existence and peace to be equal, and that both are illusion-like during subsequent attainment and uh, post-meditation. Since there is a remainder of the afflicted mind during this phase, a faint rem, uh, uh, remainder, one speaks of abiding on the seven impure bhumis of the path of familiarization, the fourth path, through becoming free from the ways of the afflicted mind as well as cl more clunky ones such as clinging and conceptions about suchness, the eighth bhumi is attained. Right upon that, only characteristics in terms of the fruition emerge in the minds of bodhisattvas. This uh, this idea that on the on the pure bhumis, bodhisattvas still have this sense of there being like some attainment, which is why Trungpa Rinpoche describes that this is like the when he talks about the one and a half fold egolessness. You know, the first fold or the first half of the second egolessness. The, the two egolessnesses are egolessness of the self of persons and egolessness of the self of phenomena. And the second one is divided into two parts, the selflessness, the uh, emptiness of the self of phenomena has two parts. The first is overcome on the first seven bhumis and is the more course aspect and then what remains is described by Trungpa Rinpoche as this sort of arrogance of of uh, knowing that one has attained the overcoming of the of the course obstacles and so one's left with this sort of arrogance of of uh, thinking that one knows enlightenment and which is the residue that remains in the Pratyeka Buddhas and the Arhats and so the last three boomies is overcoming that. And uh, let's see, as well, uh, right upon that, only characteristics in terms of the fruition emerging in the minds of bodhisattvas. Then, through as many Buddhas as their sand grains in the Ganges River, showing their faces to these bodhisattvas, they cause them to rise from their non-conceptual meditative equipoise. Thus, since these bodhisattvas engage in Buddha realms in the heart of enlightenment, both of which are completely purified, these are the pure bhumis. Finally, by relinquishing the still remaining portions of the stains of the alia consciousness, <coughs> which contains all seeds through the three pure bhumis, the clinging to characteristics of the fruition also subsides. Thus the freedom from the fourfold clinging to characteristics is called the non-conceptual wisdom of Buddhahood. And at that point the Alia consciousness is completely overcome or torn up, dispelled, dispersed. And you might wonder, well if all the Buddhas numbering the equal to the grains of sand in the Ganges appear these days for bodhisattvas at that point. What, who appeared for the first of those Buddhas? Anyway, the manner of attaining purity despite the Buddha heart being unchanging, including scriptural support. 
from our sponsors. At that point, and those who have the Kaya of space, Kaya of space is such a cool term. The flowers of the minor, sorry, major marks will blossom. Impure, 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 and utterly pure in due order. The three phases of uh, before the path, during the path, and after the path are expressed as the three phases of sentient beings, bodhisattvas, and tathagatas. But Buddhahood is nothing newly arisen. Being the same before as after, it is the changeless Buddha heart. It is the freedom from stains that is expressed as change. At that point when there is freedom from the stains of the fourfold clinging to characteristics as just explained, Buddhas abide in the state of great peace, the Dharmakaya, and are free from all reference points. And those who have found the Kaya of space, the light rays of knowledge, loving kindness and power, will make the flowers of the major and minor marks blossom. With the two Rupakayas promoting the welfare of sentient beings, the profound inner meaning says the victor endowed with the Kaya of space through the orb of the sun of wisdom displays the Rupakayas in all the worlds in the ten directions for as long as samsara lasts. As for this Buddhahood, there are the phases of not being pure, abstains, the phase of possessing both impure and pure aspects, and the phase of being utterly pure. In due order, these are the these three are expressed or taught as the three phases. So he's he's going through and explaining the root verse. You see the words from the root verse and uh, being bold. And uh, let's see, sentient beings and samsara as the first phase, bodhisattvas on the path, and then Buddha's Tathagatas. But Buddha does nothing newly arisen that did not exist before, existing the same before as after it is changeless because the Buddha heart is suchness, whose essence is without change. Nevertheless, it is the very aspect of being free and liberated from adventitious stains known as the fetter of apprehender and apprehended that is expressed as the factor which is called this change of state. I'll skip the quote. Uh, determining this through answers to objections. These are some good objections. Okay, so the first one, brief instruction on causelessness and outer causes being untenable. Those who engage, those who engage in poor views think that Buddha qualities are without cause or not in ourselves, but produced through external causes and conditions. How are these different from non-Buddhist views on permanence extinction. Those persons who have not arrived at the, the intention, i.e. the true intention of the Buddha's words and the treatises on them, thus engage, engaging in poor views in their minds through a flawed understanding of the teachings, assert that the Buddha qualities arise from the nature of phenomena, which is nothing but empty, and thus are without cause. All phenomena are empty, and the Buddha, Buddha qualities arise from them, so they are empty and without cause, is one extreme. Such a philosophical system neither accords with scriptures and reasoning, nor is it the intention of the sutras and tantras. Adoha declares, since there is no result other than the cause, the means is not emptiness. Emptiness is not very productive, in other words. The Garjanist says, likewise, from all seeds there are, fruits are born that match their cause. 
by which person could it then be proved that there is a fruit without a seed? Or some assert that the Buddha qualities are not primordially existing in ourselves already. Rather, they say we newly plant latent tendencies of external studying and reflecting. Reflecting again and again about the meaning of what we have studied, meditate on that meaning, and so forth, since we do this many times through all the causes and conditions, those latent tendencies increase and expand, which produces previously non-existent Buddha qualities. So the other extreme is that the Buddha qualities are created and developed, come from somewhere else initially. Such thinking is not reasonable since the kayas and wisdoms of the Buddha Bhagavats are unconditioned. They are not produced through conditioned causes and conditions. The Chakra Sambra Tantra says the spontaneously present nature is mistaken as being produced by causes and conditions. Uh, let's see, skipping that quote. Take the non-Buddhist Tirtagas view on permanence illustrated. Tirtagas are the non-Buddhists a major school of the non-Buddhist materialists, illustrated by the assertion of the followers of Ishra that all inner and outer entities are created by Ishwara and um, other such views, and their view on extinction, the assertion by the followers of wow, Buddhahashpati that all entities arise without a cause, just by their own nature. How are these above wrong views by Buddhists different from these bad views here? <laughs> They're not in the slightest. So in other words, uh, he, he uh, uh, reveals the faults in the views of the earlier Buddhist schools and those Buddhist schools that mistakenly uh, understand the Buddha nature in a mistaken way, as well as non-Buddhists. How do we gain certainty about pure and impure imagination? The appearing of momentarily arising and ceasing formations is comparable to impure formations. If it were not like this, the continuum of the enlightened activity of the Rubakayas would be interrupted. However, this is not expressed by the name formations, but by discriminating wisdom. A little bit cryptic this time. With their discriminating wisdom, the victors view all worlds six times per day and night. <laughs> Once per watch. You know what a watch is. You know, in the old days, they had watches. Like on ships, you know, it was like you had to, somebody had to climb up to the top, the crow's nest, and uh, all the time be up there. And so they would do it in watches. And the length of a watch is how long. Four hours, thank you, Morgan. And six times four is 24. Six times per day and night. So they would do it. There's three watches in each, huh? Anyway, thus knowing the different mind streams of sentient being simultaneously and so on. These formations of their all-knowing and loving wisdom which surge or radiate for the welfare of others, appear as if they were rising and ceasing momentarily in terms of merely the factor of causing arising and ceasing without depending on any effort. They are comparable to the impure formations that are the movements of mind or mentation. If it were not like this, but a wisdom appearing on the level of seeming reality as if arising and ceasing, the continuum of the enlightened activity of the Rubakayas 
both Sambhogakai and Nirmanakai would be interrupted. The reason for this is that it would not be justified for the continuum Nirmanakais to arise in an uninterrupted manner, since the wisdom of the victors would neither know nor see those to be guided. Um, it's a little cryptic, huh? Therefore, that's not reasonable. However, this wisdom is not expressed by the name formations, rather expressed by the name discriminating wisdom, since it is, does not exist as something really established, as it is imputed by the mind as beyond being one or different. I think differentiating this from formations, as in the fourth skanda, which are uh, impermanent, momentary arisings, that the uh, wisdoms and activities of the Buddha nature are not impermanent and momentary, but are unceasing. Purified imagination is discriminating wisdom, and the objects of the five gates are all accomplishing wisdom. So, um, two types of wisdom so far. Discriminating wisdom is purified imagination, correct understanding, i.e., and the uh, sense experience of the five gates is the all-accomplishing wisdom itself. He quotes the Trikaya Nama Sutra, uh, the sutra named Trikaya, the, uh, or that pays homage, rather, to the Trikaya, the purified state of the Aliyah consciousness is mirror-like wisdom. The Dharmakaya, the purified state of the afflicted mind, is the wisdom of equality. The purified state of the, uh, what is that, the Ratna family? And the purified state of the mental consciousness is discriminating wisdom, the Padma family. The mirror-like was the Vajra family, both being the Sambhogakaya. So the Vajra family is affiliated with the Dharmakaya, and the next two with the Sambhogakaya, and then the purified state of the consciousness of the five sense gates is the all-accomplishing wisdom, the Nirmanakaya, the Karma family. All-accomplishing wisdom has two parts. The first part is the manner in which the subjects and objects of the five gates appear, what has the nature of the great elements, and so on, and is associated with apprehension, displays its powerful essence. As for both mistakenness and unmistakenness, there is no difference as far as appearances, as, as far as appearance go. As for what has the nature of causal form, the great elements, of earth, water, fire, wind, and so on, the elementary derivatives of forms, sounds, smells, tastes, and tangible objects at the time of sentient beings, it is tainted by the adventitious stains of being associated with the apprehension of names and characteristics and so on, because at that time the mind appears as external objects. So we have the impure imagination phase. What has uh, once one has this nature of the elements, sorry, once what has this nature of the elements has become pure and has changed state on the Buddha Bhumi, in other words, at Buddhahood, it becomes the powerful essence of each of the elements and their derivatives, which is the completion of the great creative display of wisdom, i.e., this is sacred world. This is the idea of Vajrayana that there is. Um, the realm of sacred worlds or Buddha, Buddha realms that 
Buddha's experience within the same place as we are. Through this Buddha's attained mastery over pure realms and extensively display enjoyments as they please. Um, let's see. Skip into quote. Therefore, both from their perspective of what appears from mistaken sentient beings and from their perspective of what the unmistaken noble ones see, there's no difference as far as the mere appearing of appearance goes. For both sentient beings of Buddhas, there is mere appearance, but they, they experience that uh, differently. This is just as in the example of an illusionist and those who watch the illusion that is created. For both, there's no difference as far as the mere appearing of illusory horses, cows, women, and so on goes. So the illusionist creates these illusions and the illusionist sees them just as the audience does. But the illusionist knows that they're illusions, just as the Buddhists know that all phenomena are illusory. The difference between beings and Buddhas and the reason for that, the difference is whether there is clinging to duality or not, period. If it were not like this, how could the enlightened activities of the Buddhas or victors engage anything? How could they engage sentient beings? You may wonder if there's no difference between sentient beings and Buddhas as far as mere appearance go, then what distinguishes mistakenness and mistakenness? Though there is no difference as far as mere appearances go, there is a difference in the way of apprehending the appearances. So the subject quality, the experience changes. And those who are mistaken, there's the clinging to the duality of, you got it? Oh my God. A and A, in the sense of them being different, while in those who are unmistaken, there's no such clinging to duality, therefore there is the difference. This is the difference. Since sentient beings do not know what appearances our minds know that appearances our minds own appearances, appearance and emptiness inseparable, they take them to be real, then they engage in adopting and rejecting, through which they become fettered. This is just as in the example of people who watch an illusion. Um, skipping the quote, since the noble ones know that objects are appearance and emptiness inseparable, and do not cling to them as being real, they will not be mistaken. Just as the illusionists do not cling to the illusions they create because they know they created them. Skipping the quote, therefore, just as with a reflection of the moon and water, Buddhas not, do not apprehend appearances as any kind of entities or non-entities whatsoever, but see them as appearance and emptiness inseparable, and also establish others in this same realization. Skipping the quote, if it were not like this, the difference between ordinary beings and Buddhas lying and whether there's clinging to duality or not, and if the outer container of this world and its contents were thus not appearing as the objects of the Buddha's wisdom, like a reflection of the moon and water, then in what manner could the enlightened activities of the two Rubakais of the victors engage which object? In other words, if they didn't see illusory appearances, they wouldn't see us, and so they would not be able to teach us and act for our benefit, i.e. engage with sentient beings. Since this would amount to the fault that enlightened activity lacks any engagement, it is not reasonable. <laughs>
The enlightened activity of all accomplishing wisdom has five parts. The first is presenting the purpose of explaining examples for it. Giving examples of a wish-fulfilling jewel and such explains the display of thought-free power. But, dot, 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 suspense builds. The Buddhas manifest the Dharmakaya as their own way welfare, and for the welfare of others, they are endowed with the boundless wisdom that consists of knowledge, loving kindness, and power, the three main qualities of Buddhahood. Knowledge, loving kindness, power, capability, so wisdom, compassion, and the capability of helping others. Through this, they know simultaneously all entities that are to be known as well as all mind streams of sentient beings without exception of display. The enlightened activities of body, speech, and mind that guide whomever is suitable in whatever ways. I'll skip the quote. The reason for this lies in the coming together of three factors. The blessing influence of the victors, the power of their former aspiration prayers, and the pure karma of those to be guided. So he's addressing another main uh, quandary in the Buddhist tradition is the uh, explanation basically to non-Buddhists of why do Buddhas exist? Why don't they just disappear? Why do they manifest and help sentient beings since they've completely overcome all need and reason for remaining in this realm? And the reason is these three things. The power of their former aspiration prayers as bodhisattvas <clears throat> over countless aeons creates a karmic momentum for them to remain and uh, um, act out those vows or make good on those vows. I skipped the first one, I'm sorry. The blessing influence of the victors. Their uh, uh, very nature is to uh, benefit beings, is to create, um, their very nature is to show enlightenment to sentient beings. The blessing influence of the victor is a little bit of a cryptic phrase. Uh, and then the third one is the pure karma of those to be guided. So based upon our karma, the karma of sentient beings, uh, they're able, either able to experience Buddhas or not. So either they're born at the time and in the proximity of a Buddha and are able to see a Buddha, or they're not. They're born somewhere else. They've never met the Buddha. They never heard the word Buddha or enlightenment. I'll skip the quote. Therefore, the Uttara Tantra gives nine examples for the enlightened activity. The Tathagatas, which are the Indra, the drum of the gods, clouds, and so on, and other texts speak of a wish-fulfilling jewel and such, or a wish-fulfilling tree. However, these are not examples for Buddhahood being without wisdom, like inanimate things, but Buddhahood is wisdom per se. So it's not like a, a, a machine that just acts sort of like without uh, in, intention. Buddhas have intention, they have wisdom. I'll skip the quote. 
However, Buddhists display the power of their knowing and loving wisdom in a way that is free from clinging to characteristics, thoughts, efforts, so forth, thus cutting through the suffering and afflictions of sentient beings. I'll skip the quote. In brief, all enlightened activities without thoughts, it occurs in a spontaneous way. Skipping the quote, the enlightened activities of the Dharmakaya, the two Rubakayas, are the display of the wisdom, loving kindness, and power of the Buddhas, the three qualities. They are explained as rising for those with pure karmic appearances, but it is not explained that they are nothing but the pure appearance of those to be guided. It is not explained that they are nothing but the pure appearance. They are explained as arising for those with pure karmic appearances, but it is not explained that they are nothing but the pure appearances of those to be guided. That's a little bit odd. Are they saying that? Are they saying that um, it's not? They're not just our imagination, in a sense. Our I don't know if that's it. I don't know. We'll have to ponder that one over the holidays and make a note to come back to it after the mistletoe and eggnog. Uh, addressing the fault of asserting that light activity is solely something in the mind streams of others. Not, uh, let's see, and this is picking up from the but dot 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 on the prior page where it says giving the examples of a wish-fulfilling jewel and such explains the display of thought-free power, but not that this is solely an appearance in, in the mind streams of others. If it were, wisdom would become the mind streams of others. <laughs> the others. But if that is accepted, women, uh, women, wisdom. <laughs> Oops. Would be mistakenness. Because the others are mistaken. As just pointed out, such explanations of the kayas and wisdoms of the victors are not explanations that they are solely some pure appearances in the mind streams of others. That is, those to be guided. So the, the Buddhas are not just appearances in the mind streams of sentient beings, which would be a mistaken way of understanding that quote about how Buddha's activity is uh, the result of those three factors the blessing influence of the victors, the power of their former aspiration prayers, and the pure karma of those to be guided. Um, otherwise, if the Buddhists had no wisdom, then the Rubakayas were solely the appearances in the mind stream of others to be guided. The wisdom of the Buddhists would become a wisdom in the mind stream of those others to be guided, and they they don't yet have real wisdom, because this wisdom is solely something in the mind streams of those others. If such is accepted, this very wisdom would be mistakenness, since it would be the mistakenness of the mind streams of those others that appears as being wisdom. Wow, that's a convoluted way of saying that. That um, Buddhas are not just the imaginations of sentient beings. Furthermore, if this wisdom were just an appearance in the minds of those others and not in the minds of Buddhas, it would be unable to take care of others since Rubakaya's that themselves lack wisdom or nothing but a name 
just as there is no food to be given by a beggar. So if they were a projection of the minds of sentient beings, then they would be without uh, the capability of doing anything. Efficacy. There is no certainty as to, the, as to appearances entailing mistakenness. Using an, a counterexample, if it is asserted that wisdom grasps at, it, at its own appearances, then also a mirror would possess conceptions of grasping at what appears. Because Buddhas are like mirrors. Someone may object if the Buddha has a wisdom that entails appearances and the mistakenness of sentient beings appears for this wisdom, there is a fault. It lies in asserting that this wisdom grasps at its own appearances, therefore being something that possesses grasping conceptuality. If such is claimed, then the following absurd consequence ensues. When a reflection appears in a mirror, also the mirror at the time of such an appearance, and it would possess conceptions of grasping at this appearance because a reflection appears in it. Therefore, those to be guided appear to a Buddha's wisdom of variety. This wisdom, those to be, therefore, those to be guided appear. Okay, this wisdom is not something that possesses uh, grasping conceptuality, just as in this example of a mirror, which lacks grasping and conceptuality with regard to the forms that appear in it. Um, Derek. Yeah. The wisdom of variety seems like an odd phrase. That um, not the wisdom of equality. I oh, that's the, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, there's that thing of knowing the essence of things and knowing the the, the sort of manifold uh, appearance yes. of things. Yes, the two aspects of omniscience, of the wisdom mm. of a Buddha, is that a Buddha knows the true nature of all phenomena and the relative nature, the variety of appearances, the way they appear, how they appear. The variety in here in, in, in Chinese variety. terminology they often talk about the 10,000 things or something like that uh, yeah we have 84,000 right right but I, I mean it's just sort of a similar thing where they just throw you know the, you know, yeah, the Dogen uses that too yeah Chris yeah so in here maybe I misunderstand but it seems like these Buddhas and and the wisdom is outside of ordinary beings but they're there guiding the ordinary beings not that it's within the ordinary beings but i could be misunderstanding yes i think that's what they're saying yes okay. I, I think he's like trying to explain um, the pure karma of those to be guided doesn't mean that the Buddhas exist in our in our minds just be ha because we have the karmic auspicious karmic coincidence of encountering them of being able to encounter them and they're free so they shouldn't be within us because we're not free exactly and yeah. exactly and I think at the, this very last part was sort of talking about though we appear to the Buddhas, it's not in the form of grasping. Right. The Buddhas right. still appear. The Buddhas experience all these appearances that we do, but they 
experience them completely differently as the purified five elements and so forth. Uh, let's see, the example for the wisdom of variety not being mistaken and its meaning. The variety of the mistakenness of sentient beings appears as the object of wisdom. So Buddhas who have wisdom see all sentient beings and what they see what sentient beings experience. But wisdom is not tainted by mistakenness, even though they, they see mistaken sentient beings. For example, in space, the arising and ceasing of the great elements appears, but space is not tainted and is without arising and ceasing. So this question of like, do Buddhas see what we see? Do they experience what we experience? which is a good question because we experience confusion. We experience things in an illusory, incorrect, mistaken way. And why would a Buddha who has no mistakenness see things the way we do? And he's saying that uh, they're not tainted by mistakenness, but they see the mistakenness of uh, all sentient beings that appears as the object of wisdom. That's Derek, sorry, yes. one more question. Yeah. Um, have, is it the idea that all Buddhas at one point were sentient beings first? Or they were. No? They were, yes. Okay. They, they definitely were. I don't know if that's the point that he's making here, though. Is that what you're saying? Or no, I was more just generally wondering, like, yeah, if there are any Buddhas who are believed to have just always been Buddhas, not just in a sense of having to tug to Garba, but actually having always been Buddhas. But it sounds like, no, they were all sentient beings at one point. Well, that's an interesting question. What um, about Samantabhadra? I mean, that, yeah. he's not... Yeah, there is this idea in the, uh, that sort of starts in the Mahayana and becomes full-blown in the Vajrayana of there being primordial Buddhas, Samantabhadra in the Nyingma tradition and Vajradhara in the uh, early, later, uh, later translation schools, traditions of Vajrayana of there being a Buddha who was always a Buddha. The idea that the Dharmakaya has always been the Dharmakaya. And we see this also in like the Lotus Sutra where the, the Buddha says, I didn't like become enlightened at a certain time under the Bodhi tree, you know, 2,500 years ago, but I've always been enlightened. And I think it's, it's the same sort of conundrum or um, combination of co seemingly contradictory qualities as the Buddha nature itself of um, this idea that Buddhas are primordially, all Buddhas, even Shakyamuni, is primordially enlightened. He didn't uh, like have to become enlightened in this lifetime or in his uh, lifetime as Shakyamuni, but he just went through the motions. And on the other hand, he went through the motions. So this sort of... Uh, contradictory, appearingly con seemingly contradictory situation. So on the one hand, yes, all all Buddhas were sentient beings, but no, all Buddhas were never sentient beings, because sentient beings never existed.
<laughs> it's such an easy way of dispelling with with problems, right? It's like the problems don't exist. <laughs> the defilements and obscurations don't exist. I was just thinking you got to have the primordial Buddha there for the other Buddhas to get there. Well, yeah, you need uh, as many as <laughs> got have that grand like, sense of yeah, who's the starter. You got to have a starter Buddha <laughs> <laughs> to start the fire, right? Uh, thus, in, in just the way the variety of the appearances of the mistakenness of sentient beings is, it appears as the object of wisdom. But what appears to this Buddha wisdom does not entail mistakenness on the side of the Buddha. The world, which consists of the outer container and its contents, being just like a reflection of the moon and water, is beheld as appearance and emptiness, inseparable, but not apprehended as either real or delusive in any way whatsoever, i.e. by Buddhas. Therefore, at any time, wisdom and enlightened activity are not tainted by sentient beings' mistakenness of clinging to reality or any reality or some reality. I'll skip the quote. For example, in empty space, the great elements appear appear to be arising and ceasing, but space is not tainted by the creating and perishing that happens within it and is without arising and ceasing. Likewise, wisdom is not mistaken, is not tainted rather by mistakenness. Never was, never will be. So the mistakenness of sentient beings is not actually there. Skipping the quote, the meaning being of being connected with enlightened activity. So this is, it's all connected to enlightened activity. Likewise, the wisdom of the victors engages sentient beings, but is untainted. This is not expressed by the name mistakenness. It is called all-accomplishing wisdom. Similar to what was just explained, the all-knowing wisdom and the loving compassion of the victors engage and know the realms of sentient beings by being in the company of the variety of their afflictions, but it is untainted by this host of afflictions, even in the slightest, just like space is not tainted by rising and perishing. For example, the rays of the sun touch unclean places such as mountains, earth, and forests without any sense of being near or far and illuminate, dry, or burn them, but the sunlight is not tainted by these places. Skipping the quote, since it is the Buddha's wisdom for the welfare of others, this wisdom is not expressed by the, mistake, by the name mistakenness. Among the four wisdoms, instead it is called the all-accomplishing wisdom. In the phase of impurity, the consciousness of the five senses engage their objects without needing any effort. Likewise, all accomplishing wisdom which comes from the change of state of these five consciousnesses engages all worldly realms through various immeasurable and inconceivable forms of emanations without needing any effort, thus accomplishing effortlessly the welfare of all sentient beings. Skipping the quote, you may wonder what the way of this change of state is. It is just as in the example of the sky being pure by nature at all times, but once it has become pure of conditions such as mist and haze, it is said that it has changed its state, or that the sky has become pure. However, these are just linguistic phrases, and the, and the space and the sky have not changed. However, there is nothing to be added newly that is other than its own essence and did not exist before. Skipping that quote, we'll then go to stating the meaning of the wisdom 
of equality. Mentation, resting pure of the three obscurations, is equality, which is peace, because it is endowed with great love and compassion, the Sambhogakaya, and so forth appear for those to be guided. This is stated in order to refute some people's claim of becoming like arhats of the Hinayana once Buddhahood is attained. Interesting. Okay. Once the three obscurations, afflictive and cognitive, as well as those of meditative absorption, have become pure through the remedies. Afflicted meditation, the clinging to I and me, the seventh consciousness, which is resting in the Alia, i.e., uh, resting in the Ali Vishnana is liberated from clinging to oneself and others as being different, and thus has changed state as the wisdom of equality. This wisdom means to not abide in the extremes, in the extreme of samsaric existence, but to dwell in the state of great peace, which is the non-abiding nirvana. On the other hand, this wisdom does not abide in the extreme of personal peace either, because it is endowed with great love and compassion in precise accordance with the inclinations of sentient beings. The appearances of the Rupakayas, Sambhogakayas, and so forth are displayed for those to be guided individually. Skipping the quote, in the thinking of some people, once perfect Buddha is attained, the continuum of consciousness is interrupted, just as the butter lamp goes out and one dwells in the extreme peace alone, if such is asserted, Buddhahood would mean to become like Shravaka and Pratika Buddhas, Arhats of the Hinayana, having entered their nirvana without remainder, with the continuum of enlightened activity thus being interrupted. Therefore, this way of being of Buddha wisdom was clearly stated in order to refute such wrong ideas, explaining the manner in which the three kayas are permanent. The first one is the meaning of the three ways of being permanent on page three, top of page 346. Wisdom is, is permanent in three ways. Being permanent by nature is the Dharmakaya. Being permanent in terms of continuity is the Sambhogakaya. And being so in terms of an uninterrupted series is the Nirmanakaya. Interesting scheme. Since the wisdom of the Buddha never changes, it is permanent in three ways. Being permanent by nature is the Dharma Dhatu. One's own welfare, which is the inseparability of Dhatu and wisdom, because the Dharmakaya is without change. Being permanent in terms of continuity is the Sambhogakaya, because it is endowed with the five certainties of, of time, place, teacher, teaching, and uh, audience. Being permanent in the sense of an uninterrupted series is the Nirmanakaya, because the deeds of enlightened activity are uninterrupted until samsara is empty, so the three kayas are all permanent and, and uh, ongoing. Skipping the quote, um, then we have... Yes. The, sorry, yes, ma'am. So continuity and uninterrupted seem sort of similar to me. Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. I forgot to mention it. it seems totally similar to me, too. Uh -huh. There must okay. be some nuance that he's bringing out that, that eludes me, I must confess. An uninterrupted series and a continuity. I guess the continuity is that Samogakaya doesn't like take birth and then 
die the way nirmanakayas do. Mm-hmm. And there is an uninterrupted series of nirmanakayas, but they do go through this appearance of being born and dying, whereas mm-hmm. samogakaya does not do that. It's completely unchanging. Uh, the meaning of threefold impermanence relating to these, there are three impermanent phenomena. Mentally fabricated emptiness is not permanent. The moving conceptual mind is not permanent. And the conditioned six collections are not permanent. Uh, related to these three wisdoms of equality, discrimination, all accomplishment is as explained above, there are three impermanent phenomena which obscure them. An emptiness that is mentally fabricated and contrived through not understanding that the five skandhas, such as form, are by nature the ultimate. The wisdom of emptiness is a limited kind of emptiness. Not understanding that the five skandhas are by nature the ultimate, the wisdom of emptiness. Their nature is emptiness and emptiness is the ultimate. Um, as opposed to their nature being uh, the relative, impermanent. Therefore, it is not permanent, since the afflicted mind and the moving conceptual mind that is produced by it are mistakenness. They are not permanent either, since the consciousnesses that consist of the six collections of consciousness are conditioned by the four conditions of uh, direct objects and so forth. The um, object condition, the dominant condition, the preceding condition, and the um, object dominant, and the other, the, the other condition. <laughs> That's the fourth one. Uh, let's see. Um, they are not permanent. Explaining some of these are like cryptic, aren't they? Like, what is he really getting at? That that first impermanent one. Anyway, can't expect to understand all this stuff, right? Explaining these as wisdoms and stains, respectively. However, in these there is threefold permanence. Three impermanent phenomena are the stains, while threefold permanence is wisdom, as such. However, in the cocoon. The cocoon. Is that where Trungpa Rinpoche got the cocoon from? Of these three impermanent phenomena just explained, there is the three... (laughs) There is the threefold permanence of wisdom in an intrinsic way, because stains and wisdom are mixed during the phase of sentient beings. You all feel that, right? That there's wisdom in and uh, stains are mixed in your mind, right? Shaken. Not shaken, but stirred. Uh, the three impermanent phenomena related to three uh, threefold permanence are the adventitious stains to be purified. While threefold permanence is the basic state, the wisdom that is the perfect nature and the result of purification. Why does Carl add Related to threefold permanence, the three impermanent phenomena, instead of just saying that are related to the adventitious stains to be purified. Anyway, 
dispelling uncertainty. So as I mentioned earlier, these are some good ones, juicy ones. The first is the meaning of being unlike the self of the Tirtikas. That's the main thing. First question that comes up, how is this Buddha nature? And it's not just like an, another uh, self, like an Atman. It is not comparable to the self of the Tirtikas since that is imputed by mind. Their version of self is crude and mundane and just imputed. It's not sophisticated like Buddha nature. Since that, I'm being slightly facetious, by the way, right? Uh, since that is imputed by mind, while the Buddha heart is not. You may wonder if the Dharmadhatu, natural luminosity, the Buddha heart, that's probably how you wonder, right? If the Dharmadhatu, natural luminosity, the Buddha heart, existed in this way as in an unchanging and permanent manner as the nature of the three kayas, it would be comparable to the self of the Tirtikas. The personal self imputed by the Tirtikas is mentally designated as permanent since it's held to be unchanging, as singular since it's not multiple, and as independent since it does not depend on causes and conditions. But the Buddha heart is not comparable to this mistakenness of imputing itself onto the five skandhas, which actually lack a self. So the main downfall of the Tirtikas is that they they describe this self that's unchanging, singular, and independent as uh, being uh, affiliated with the five skandhas. The reason is that mind is such the Dharmakaya is taught as being ultimately permanent since it is free from the entire web of reference points such as the rising and ceasing thus having the nature being conditioned spontaneously present and all pervading like space. Therefore the self is a superimposition imputed by the Tirtagas through their minds that attain mental fabrications while the Tathagata is the ultimate that is, the wisdom of emptiness free from being one or different, which has the nature of lacking a self. Therefore, since it's not something that is superimposed as the self in mind and is not imputed by conceptuality, it's not comparable to the self imputed by the Tirtikas. That's a little bit of a... Uh, I don't know. That wasn't thoroughly convincing to me. There's some sense that uh, uh, we sort of gone beyond the five skandhas, so we're not trying to like affiliate, compare it or relate it to the five skandhas. Cynthia? I was wondering, I mean, I don't understand it either fully, but I was wondering if it's, it means, in a way, it seems like it's saying that the Tirtika's view of what is the self by associating with the five skandhas is, is the stained reality, I mean, the stainedness, whereas the Buddha nature is the unstainedness. And I'm wondering if somehow that has something to do with what is the difference. Hmm. Interesting, interesting interpretation. Something good to ponder. How does it, you know, this is the big question, how does it differ from, from a self? How does the Buddha nature not just another self? And the, the answer in other situations is usually that it, it, is, um, it is empty. And it, uh, at the same time, possesses but a nature, but a qualities. And uh, is not a, an object of mind. So that's the same. That's what he's saying. It's not 
but a nature is not an imputation of conceptual mind. That's a hard one to prove. <clears throat> the meaning of not being comparable to the peace of Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas. It's not comparable to the peace of those buddy, those guys, for it displays all the qualities of the Rupakayas. So it doesn't dissolve into the nirvana of the any so-called Hinayanists. As for the peace of Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas, it is taught that they dwell in a state of nothing but personal mental peace, until, of course, they're awakened by all the Buddhas of the Ten Directions to proceed on the path of the Mahayana. For as long as they're not exhorted, exhorted by the Buddhas, existing in a wisdom body, the Shravakas stay in a swoon, intoxicated by their samadhi of cessation, swooning. Uh, let's see. Thus, Buddhas who dwell in the Dhatu of not abiding in the two extremes of samsara and nirvana are not comparable to Shravakas and so forth, who dwell in the state of an one-sided peace for due to the power of non-referential compassion. They display all the many aspects of the qualities of the Rupakayas, the Sambhogakaya, and the Nirmanakaya, which guide whomever among the infinite number of beings to be guided in whatever way ways suitable. Non-referential compassion is the third of three types of compassion. There's there's compassion uh, towards sentient beings. There's compassion towards the nature of reality. And then there's compassion without reference point. Now you might ask, what is compassion towards the nature of reality and how does that differ? from compassion towards sentient beings? And that's a very good question. <laughs> if, if I understand it correctly at all, maybe just a little bit, I think maybe it's something like compassion towards the nature of realities, like towards, towards the uh, impermanent and suffering <clears throat> nature of all of reality. Whereas the first one is actually compassion towards uh, all individual sentient beings. But it's a little bit of, uh, it's hard to sort of understand what that middle one is. Anyway, uh, the same is also stated in a hundred thousand Yogacara texts, <laughs> as if there were a hundred thousand of them. Through skill and means, they do not abide in peace, and through prajna, not in samsara, having abandoned the two extremes, they engage in beings' welfare, free from thoughts. The meaning of not being comparable to sentient beings, these are not comparable to the bodies of sentient beings, these being the, the kayas, I guess, since they're not produced by contaminated conditions. You may wonder whether such rubikais are comparable to the bodies of sentient beings, since both possess form. They look the same. They look similar. They're not comparable to the bodies of sentient beings which have the nature of skandhas and so forth, i.e. conditioned phenomena propelled by karma and afflictions, since the two rupakayas are not produced by contaminated conditions, karma and afflictions. Additionally, in the phase of utter purity, Buddhahood, if there is not even the birth of a 
of a body that has a mental nature and is produced by uncontaminated karma, what is there to say about the kind of birth in which the contaminated skandhas become manifest? What the hell does that mean? Additionally, in the phase of utter purity, Buddhahood, if there is not even the birth of a body that has a mental nature and is produced by uncontaminated karma, what is there to say about the kind of birth in which the contaminated skandhas become manifest? If there's not even aging in terms of various transmutations, forget about aging, that is the maturing of psychophysical formations. If there's not even the sickness of subtle latent tendencies, forget about the sickness of the afflictions. If there are not even the deaths transition that are inconceivable transformations. Forget about the death and transition of having reached the end of one's lifetime. Anybody have any ideas? I seem to have neglected to grok this one when I prepared. They're not comparable to the bodies of sentient beings. Since the two rubicons are not produced by contaminated conditions, I get that part. Yeah, I think it, I think again it's all this stainlessness. They're not, you know, uh, bound and tied into the whole cycle of birth, old age, sickness, and death. The meaning of not being comparable to sentient beings. Interesting. It is not born with a body of mental nature since it is permanent. It does not die through the death and transition that are inconceivable transformations since it is steadfast. It is not harmed by the sicknesses of latent tendencies since it is peace as such, since it is immutable, it being the Rubakaya. It is without the aging through uncontaminated formations. Isn't that sort of inverse of the marks somewhat? The four marks, yeah. But um, it, since it is immutable, it is without aging through uncontaminated formations. It does not die through the death and transition that are inconceivable transformations since it is steadfast. But it's, so it's not an inconceivable transformation. The meaning of not regressing, Buddhists will not regress since what is has become manifest just as it is, since what is has become manifest just as it is. You may wonder, do you ever wonder, as for these Buddhas who possess stains before, though these stains are eliminated through the path, will they not go back into samsara again? Will they not fall back? Buddhas in whom the basic nature has become manifest through the realization will not regress and become afflicted again since what is, i.e. primordially present mind as such, the basic nature as it is, has become manifest, just as its way of being is through personally experienced wisdom. So once it's emerged, it doesn't go back. Dharmakirti explains this in his Pramanavartika commentary on valid cognition. Having the nature of being harmless and actual reality, it is not reversed through its opposites, even with efforts. Its mind adheres to this side. That is its nature. 
Once it happens, once enlightenment happens, it's irreversible. The meaning of the stains never rising again. The stains never rise again since there's freedom from any imagination of difference. There's no cause for the stains to arise. You may wonder though Buddhists have reached the end of the path. Will the stains of mistaken mind not arise again? Once true realities become manifest in Buddhas, the stains never arise again since there's freedom from stains. For these stains are the mistaken imagination that clings to apprehender and apprehended being different, and the cause of this is ignorance, which doesn't exist anymore. Ignorance has been uprooted. Since they've relinquished the seeds of the views about a self, these definitely do not return. Summary, like the sound of that. Therefore, this mind is such. <clears throat> Buddhahood exists right now, but we don't know it. For these reasons, this mind is such. Natural luminosity, Buddhahood, endowed with the 64 qualities, exists in a complete fashion right now, at the time of sentient beings, the ground, but by virtue of its being obscured by the stains of apprehender and apprehended, we don't know diddly about it. We don't know anything about it. This is like in the example of poor persons who do not know that there's a treasure in their home and thus suffer from being destitute. The analogy of the people who live in a house with a treasure under the floor. As in the quote, which I'll skip, and then finally gaining certainty about the explanation of the essence through scriptures, and there's these three quotes, and let's see, we're at the end of our time, so, okay, so we'll leave this section. This is the blurred vision and iron. How about the first one? At the time of realization, just as with the subsiding of heat and iron and blurred vision in the eyes, the mind and wisdom of a Buddha are not said to be existent or non-existent. Uh, in general, through the prajna arising from study, reflection, and meditation, in particular the dependently originating blessings of the guru and the disciples' devotion coming together mind is such, the basic nature of the Sugadhar is directly realized. Boom. That time is just as in the examples of the eventual subsiding of heat and burning iron, meaning no more painful torment. Oh my God. And the subsiding of painful blurred vision in the eyes, meaning no more blurred vision. Therefore, at that point, it is neither the case that the entities of heat and blurred vision exist, nor that the iron and clear eyesight, which are characterized by the former two having subsided, do not exist, since they are still existent. Likewise, when Buddhas, um, it's, it's not that things that don't exist ever no longer exist, i.e. the heat and the blurred vision. Likewise, when Buddhists have awoken from or cleared away ignorance and unfolded their wisdom, they unfold their wisdom like you would unfold a napkin, right? Um, mind, the eight collections of consciousness, is cleared away and the five wisdoms have unfolded themselves. 
or those like those mattresses that you buy they come in a box compressed and then you open it up <laughs> five wisdoms unfold as for this the state of buddhahood the stains of the mistakenness of seeming reality just as heat and blurred vision are not said to be existent while on the other hand buddhahood itself is not said to be non-existent either just as iron and clear eyesight Probably we should stop at that point. <laughs> up, I seem to be about to fall asleep here. I've never yawned so much in my life. God. It's good you have a long night ahead of you tonight. <laughs> I guess so. Hopefully a long night of deep and restful sleep, sleep, sleep. I took my glasses off and my vision was blurred and it's only getting blurrier. It's not clear <laughs> enough. <laughs> oh, I don't Stick them in the iron. Stick them with the hot iron. See oh, what? that's the trick. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. We got to revisit this, how it's not, how it's different from the, uh, the, all the Atman of the Tirtikas. Anyway, that seems to be the, the 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 whole nut right there. It is. It's totally <laughs> the whole thing right there, and he has like one little one paragraph on it that's sort of cryptic. I don't know. We should talk to him. <clears throat> we should talk to Carl. He should write a five hundred page book on that. <laughs> Anyway, sorry to drag on here. We should do our dedicatory chant and close. Not that one, this one. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Hear, hear, kiki, so, so. And may Derek get a very good night's sleep. <laughs> I don't know why. Okay, thank you. Very We're, not meeting. We're not, not meeting. We're not meeting. Not meeting next week. Okay. Uh, ideally, we'll meet the week after, in early January, January fourth, unless unless something happens to compel us not to. But otherwise, it looks like we have at least two meetings left for this book. Probably, realistically, three. Which sort of brings us through January. Then we'll take a week off. And then we'll start the next course on meditation using Alan Wallace's writings. Yay! Yeah. I think he's a sort of amazing way of presenting meditation. So this whole thing of, of uh, meditation, the path of meditation being going down into the Alia Vijnana, and the, the nature of the Alia Vijnana is those experiences of bliss, luminosity, and non-thought 
that's where you experience those because that is the nature that threefold nature is the Aliyah Vishnana. but then you have to smash your way through the Aliyah Vishnana. you have to cut your way through that womb that cocoon of the Aliyah Vishnana in order to achieve enlightenment so you have something to look forward to so happy holidays have a wonderful holiday season hope you don't get ill stay healthy safe and i look forward to seeing you next year thank you Bye. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Until next year. Here, Be here. Well. Happy, Happy holidays. Bye. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye.